Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you. More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all, with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 924. Today we have a question from Ed, who asks, Are there lines a writer should not cross in fiction? Since I suspect your answer is no, the follow-up question is, are there lines a writer should be very cautious about crossing, and why? Finally, are there lines you personally won't cross in your fiction? You really want to get me in trouble, don't you, Ed? Um, okay, uh, yeah, there are a few lines a writer shouldn't cross. Plagiarism is one of the obvious ones. Um, doing a derivative work so closely that they actually qualify as copyright infringement or unauthorized usage of someone else's property, that's another good one. But I'm by the tone of the rest of your question, you're obviously talking about content and subject matter. Um, yeah, my in terms of content and subject matter, my answer is generally no. There are no lines a writer should not cross, and my reason for that is very simple. There are no lines that human beings won't cross in the right circumstances. You look around at your group of friends today, chances are... Whoever, no matter who you are, chances are that they're doing and saying some things that 10 years ago they would have considered utterly beyond the pale ethically. But because there's now a cultural mentality that we're in a war for survival, suddenly there's tactics on the table that undercut what we would normally call morality and ethics and... Everybody likes to run with that. The sense of liberation when you are given license by circumstance or culture to go hog wild and ignore all the lines is intoxicating and fairly dangerous. So given that it is my opinion that the function of fiction is to create and transmit culture, that includes criticizing culture and just doing fluffy entertainment. If there are places that humans can go and will given the right circumstances, then that's a place that some writer at least has to be able to go. Otherwise, what are we here for? We're just kind of jerking ourselves off in public, which, hey, you know, OnlyFans proves there's an audience for that, <laughs> but uh, you don't need to be able to construct a glorious metaphor to do that. You just have to know how to move right, have the right genetics, and pretty good business sense. Different skill set. Um, what was the second part of the question there? Are there lines that you should be cautious about mm. 
crossing. Yeah, I think there are definitely lines you should be cautious about crossing. Um, what those lines are is going to change depending on your era and circumstance. And genre. And genre. But I want to shove genre off to the side for, for a moment just because... I mean, everyone knows that you can get away with levels of violence and racism in crime fiction that you can't in sweet romance, for example. You can get away with levels of sex in thrillers that you can't in sweet romance. So I'm going to shove that off to the side for for the purposes of this answer. The lines that you should cross, or the lines that you should be careful about crossing are going to vary a lot depending on the moment you're writing, um, and especially the moment you're publishing. We all have, at least those of us who like to read, we all have favorite books that could never get published today because they touch on stuff that is live wire shit now that, in a way that it wasn't back at the time they were published. Or it touches on stuff that was live wire then and is live wire now in ways that get read very differently now than they would have read then on the basis of language, if nothing else. One of the things about... Um, liberal culture is that um, because the value the value of openness and progress are so dearly held, every subsequent half generation has an incentive to pretend that the previous generations were worse and more close-minded than they were, so that they can feel good about themselves for advancing the liberal cause and progressing society and progressing social morality and that sort of thing. So there is a lot of lying that goes on about what things were and how they were, how they appeared in the past that goes on right alongside some very accurate pictures of the brutalities and um, unsavory aspects of the past that we, in our current era, are fixated on as the sins we do not wish to repeat. So... You know, you could write... So, like, uh, here's a good example. I've just been reading up about this because of some of the, uh, some of the ongoing um, pedophilia scandals around science fiction fandom, which have been going on constantly since the 90s um, for a lot of very interesting and complicated reasons. But there was a, um, there was a cultural moment in the 1950s through the 1970s partly as a reaction against the sexual repression of the uh, 1950s, partly as a result of the work of Margaret Mead making it into the mainstream through the freshly educated masses. Um, the awareness that sexual morality is highly culturally contingent. Every culture has it, and every culture has a slightly different way of doing it. And those different ways of doing it and I, by it, I don't mean sex, I mean the morality around sex. Those ways of doing it diverge further and further and further the farther you get from whatever your base condition of measurement is. Industrial societies post-birth control in the West have all settled on flavors of sexual morality that you can recognize from each other, even if they're basic attitudes about particular acts or propriety or whatnot are different from one another and very culturally. When you move from uh, weird, from uh, Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic weird cultures, when you move from weird cultures into agrarian cultures, into 
pre-educated industrial Western cultures into primitive settled cultures as opposed to primitive nomadic cultures versus primitive hunter-gatherer cultures, you get some pretty radically different ways that things are done and different attitudes about what sex is for and what makes it appropriate and what makes it abusive and what makes it taboo. So there was this moment, starting about 1960 and lasting through the late 1970s, where in fiction especially, you know, we talk about the sexual revolution of the 60s and the 70s, but in fiction it was way more intense because everyone was starting to explore this idea that sexual morality is socially contingent. Oh, well, what might that mean? Um, if you have incredibly long-lived people in the far future, what does that do to the incest taboo? If you're in a post-apocalyptic wasteland where... Um, mates are hard, where good mates are hard to come by, what does that do to where you would put something analogous to the age of consent? How does the circumstance change the morality? That was an open questing that was going on in a lot of genre literature, not just science fiction, but crime fiction and whatnot at the time because of this new idea and the way that the introduction of the birth control had disrupted all the old ideas anyway. So you could write a really touching, beautiful romance featuring a pedophilic element, or what we would call a pedophilic element, the the youngster was 13, as was John Farley's, I think, Persistence of Vision. And it was edgy for its time, but it's a very interesting and considered treatment of the subject that's highly context-dependent. You would never get away with that now. Because at the moment, culturally, we don't consider anyone under the age of 20 to be adults. And we've got a strange attitude where children should have fully developed sexuality, fully expressed sexuality, be sexual free agents, and yet should be protected extremely. Now, this isn't a tenable position. We're right now crossing from one set of morals to another around sex and age of consent, and I don't know which way we're going, and I don't know if I like which way we're going, because I don't know which way we're going. But it's one of many things at the moment where the deals are all getting renegotiated, but that's a much hotter-button issue now than it was then, partly because in the 1980s, when the boomers came of age and started having their children, they started thinking about all the sexual abuse they suffered during the repression of the 1950s and early 60s, where everything was kept quiet. Everything was kept quiet. The number of people I know who were boomers who were raped as children is off the charts. It was, it was way more than one in four from the, uh, from the reading I've done. It was probably about half of boomers were raped as children, um, either by parents or by close family friends or whatnot. And it just wasn't talked about because sex was a very taboo subject and no one would possibly believe, no one could bring themselves to believe that something that seemed to them so monstrous could be happening at home. So they just didn't believe the kids because kids make stuff up. So there was this massive shift in attitudes around what was okay to think about and to do thought experiments with throughout the 1980s and the 1990s because all the people who were sexually abused by the traumatized World War II veterans were suddenly 
ultra protective of their children. And now we've got another generation that's starting to have children that grew up on internet porn with very liberal sexual attitudes for teenagers, but also very high levels of concern around molestation. That's going to create a new kind of moral soup where it comes to cultural attitudes about children and sexuality. And how it's going to shake out is anyone's guess at this point. But um, you're not going to be able to write the kinds of stories and get away without a serious public pummeling that you could write in the 1970s for exploring the topics of the day, because the topics of today are different. So if you're going to be touching on something taboo, and I deliberately went for the most taboo thing in order to illustrate the point, if you're going to be touching on something that's taboo and difficult, going to want to be careful to include your audience, to bring them into the discussion, to the thought experiment, to the story, rather than beating them over the head with it or being utterly insensitive to the context from which your audience is coming. Unless you're doing shock fiction, and that's a whole other thing. Then you've got an audience that wants to be shocked, and the rules are a little different. So that's the kind of stuff... Anything that touches on some kind of major taboo, especially if it touches on the major taboo in a way that is not obviously preaching the current accepted morality, but is either preaching something contrary to it, is taking a more nuanced position, is taking an exploratory position, or is taking no position at all and is just including it as part of life. Those are things where you're going to want to be careful because it can be commercially incredibly lucrative to tread on toes, but it can also be commercial poison. Um, and right now, and we've got no shortage of taboos around sex, race, gender identity, sexual politics, politics, religion, just about everything right now is somebody's sacred cow, because in times of cultural uncertainty, sacred cattle ranchers make bang. <laughs> There's going to come a time pretty soon when people need to start goring sacred cows aggressively in order for the cultural conversation to mm, advance to the point... Steak. Exactly. Advance to the point where we can have a functioning society, or at least functioning social bubbles that bump into each other occasionally. So... There's that. As far as what I won't touch, I don't know if there is anything I wouldn't touch in principle. Um, I kind of make it my business, I make it one of my jobs to stretch a little finger across whatever I feel the most delicate line nearby is anytime I write a book. Um, like uh, with Deathlight to Mars, I jumped into some pretty, uh, pretty scary territory thematically. Um, hopefully you guys will like that when it comes out. But, um, yeah, in principle, there's nowhere I won't go, or at least I haven't found it yet. Um, doesn't mean that that doesn't exist. Um, who knows? But, um, there we go. Got anything you want to add? So, uh, there we go, Ed, and, uh, you may have gotten me into a boatload of trouble, but hey... <laughs> That's what I'm here for. <laughs> we'll see you tomorrow.
The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.